Thank you for listening to Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Body. This is Episode 22, Act 2, Mindy A. Early, Holding Space for Processing and Magic, recorded March 28, 2019, in New York City. One size fits all prudent kids all screaming about irrevocability. Let's burn some bridges, earn some stitches, and fight our own way free. Cause the rules don't lie, but they don't apply to people like you and me. Let's start it up now. 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 Now they say it's all decided, all divided, all laid out. And the pushcart man with a three-part plan can't understand what you're shouting about. But when the past they plow, the lives allowed are the only roads you can see. Just remember the walls were built to fall for people like you and me. Let's start it up now. 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 Hey, hey, TA listeners. Thanks for listening. And remember, tell your peeps to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever they listen to podcasts so that they can get the notification first when a new episode airs. Also, remember to follow on social media. That is the Facebook, the Twitter, Instagram. What fun. But this is how we grow our community. And we're so happy that you're a part of ours. Pop those earbuds in. We have an exciting announcement to make about a new partnership with Blick Art Materials. Take a listen. Hi, Pata. Hi, Courtney. How are you? I'm very good. Thank you. I'm really glad that you're here. I'm glad too. (laughs) Hey, why don't you tell us your role at Blick Art Materials? I am the new local outreach manager for the New York City Blick Art Materials stores. My position was created in a reactive response to a now very dense art community and market in New York City. I manage the flow of event and sponsorship requests for New York City that go through our larger national marketing team to make sure that these local requests get handled in a timely manner mm. and get the attention that they need. I'm also tasked to seek out new avenues of engagement with the local art community and to be the face of Blick on site at local events where we'd like to be in contact with our audience outside of our typical arenas of educational institutions. I will also be creating new opportunities for artists to showcase their work in New York City under the Blick umbrella in the form of art shows and pop-up shops. We want to go beyond the coupon with customer engagement and create destination-style events to excite. Ooh, to excite. Well, I'm I'm going to tell you that I recall seeing you for the first time, and that got me excited uh, at the face-to-face conference, which was part of the, round, the New York City Arts and Education Roundtable in April. And when you happened to get up at some point where you asked a question, I just thought, ooh, I need to talk to this woman. And then when we did speak, and then we continue to talk about and sort of get to this place of, of, of where we are right now, um, it's been a nice momentum to get here. Um, so I'm, what I've, what I, 
I'm going to ask you the first question that I asked you when we first sat down in your little tiny little office. <laughs> what type of artist are you? I am mainly a three-dimensional mixed media artist. Uh, I would say my work borders on the avant-garde. My father was really into surrealism. So that's really where I get my first uh, inklings of art was along that mm -hmm. genre. Um, I enjoy working mainly on costumes, makeup design. I love working with black light reactive materials. And recently I've added motion as an element to some of my costume designs. Motion, you say? Spinning. <laughs> spinning. Things spinning. Oh I, oh, I can't wait. I've seen some of your head pieces that are really remarkable yes those now spin <laughs> oh my god i can't wait okay cool um so you you said that this is sort of a new position um you're local so these are new york city based artists that you're supporting correct um and so what are some of the types of or how are the ways that you interact with these artists uh, the types of artists that blick art materials is known to support are visual artists painters people who sketch um that's all very typical but sometimes our support branches away from visual arts to bring added dimension to dance theater music mm -hmm. and even film wherever there's a need to build or decorate or just create everyone is always welcome to come to blick to get the materials that they need to bring their ideas to life love it absolutely love it um i remember walking through the store I, it was probably well i know for sure it's the first time i was in that store um and there the materials look like um high quality and 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 great i mean it feels like there's a there's also um um, a kind, flowy energy in the space. W would you agree with that? Uh, I would say that uh, Blick's main message mm -hmm. is that we are artists serving other artists. Beautiful. So it, uh, as artists ourselves, we know that there needs to be a range of materials for everybody from the beginner to the advanced mm -hmm. artist. And you're always going to come in and walk away with what you need. Beautiful. Um, so we've been talking about building a partnership between the podcast, teaching artistry and Blick art materials. And now we're here. So do you want to help us understand what the partnership will be between the two entities? Well, this lends itself to the old adage. If a tree falls in the forest and no one is around to hear it, did it indeed make a sound? So if Blick supports local artists and we don't give proper notice and attention to it, mm and let everyone know about it, did we actually help? So this partnership is an experiment in communication and collaboration to make an impact by actively connecting us to our students, teachers, artists, and other collaborators in a way other than a catalog or mm -hmm. flyer. Yeah, I mean, that is absolutely the point of this um, this podcast is to celebrate, to spotlight, to highlight um, artists who are doing really interesting work and in terms of like community engagement um, or whatever those communities may be. And so I'm curious, um, what can listeners expect from these episodes and what do you hope they get out of it? I hope ultimately that listeners will be inspired to support the artists and organizations that we feature. 
Listeners will be learning how art is being used by Blick Art Materials customers to support many topics such as physical and mental health and even human rights. I hope listeners will enjoy hearing about how others are adding art to their everyday lives and supporting each other in that endeavor. Mm. For example, there's an urban sketchers group, a group that comes together to celebrate their love of the urban landscape. And I'd like everyone to walk away with a renewed sense of optimism about their own art and how they can use it to not only create, but to cure and inspire and communicate. I would also like to see our audience think of Blick Art Materials as a true friend to the arts. I like that. A true friend. I'm already feeling that. Uh, you know, I said that I met you at the face-to-face conference, but I've seen Blick Art Materials, um, swag bags, and other um, and your presence, frankly, um, at other events um, over the course of the spring and beyond. And so I'm excited because I tend to live in the sort of the arts education world to see how that how this can have um, a ripple effect um, through the podcast, but also in the, in the field beyond. So I'm excited. Um, are you, are you excited? Why are you excited? Are you? <laughs> I'm super, <laughs> I am super excited. Mm-hmm. Uh, my excitement is fed from the art artists and collaborators who we are going to be bringing on to this podcast. All of them who I have spoken to are thrilled to have a platform to speak on. I feel that no matter how many Instagram posts you put up or how many um, flyers you hand out, how many places you go to speak, Mm -hmm. there's always room for one more Mm. avenue. Mm -hmm. And if you share the excitement with other people, you know, they, they appreciate that. So I'm here to let you know that Blick wants to, you know, be appreciative and excited and happy with you about your art projects. Yay. Yeah. And I think that that's a good point that you're making about, you know, we have so many different platforms that we can reach people. I think podcasts are, um, uh, a space that people understand and also don't understand. There's an intimacy there. Um, and I love that idea that the, this podcast can really support some of your goals, um, at Blick Art Materials. Um, but you're also helping us to serve some of our goals. Um, in terms of being able to really reach beyond my particular circles, frankly, um, in terms of being able to chat and learn more about artists and artists who are doing really interesting work. Yeah, I think that podcasts are for the dedicated listener. Mm. And these are important things that we're talking about because with the rapidly changing landscape of New York City, we don't want to lose that creative flavor that made New York City so great. Blake Art Materials would like to be part of the solution in keeping uh, art alive in New York City. I love that. Uh, Creative flavor. I'm about it. (laughs) I'm definitely about it. Um, And I I think that it will also be interesting to see how you and I continue to um, think about who, you know, beyond maybe beyond this series in general, that this series, um, we know that we're going to be featuring two artists over the course of the next few months um, within 2019. And as this experiment goes, which I hope will be a positive one, we'll see what's possible in the future. Um, Is there anything else that you want to add? Well, mostly to um, find out more about how Blick Art Materials supports local New York City artists. People listening can reach out to me directly. My email is nyevents at dickblick.com. 
And if you want a more general sense of how uh, Blick Art Materials helps the larger art community, go to www.dickblick.com and look up Blick Gives Back to find out about our larger support initiatives. Thank you so much for being here, Pata. Thank you, Courtney. And uh, I can't wait for the series to really launch, as it were. (laughs) Teaching Artistry is thrilled about this upcoming series and can't wait to spotlight New York City-based artists who do incredible work in communities. The first of the two artists in this pilot series will be featured in October. Stay tuned. So it's September and school's back in session. And I wanted to just point out um, something that I, I feel like I've talked about on this podcast in the past around um, the fact that the New York City public school system is the most segregated school system in the school, uh, sorry, in the country and obviously the largest. And um, our uh, NYCDOE um, motto is equity and excellence and it's hard to have equity when you are living in a living and working in a segregated system so i'm curious if you have heard of the school diversity advisory group um this is a group that was um founded i think in 2017 and it's a group of students educators parents advocates and researchers and they are to advise the mayor and the chancellor on policies specifically to advance school diversity and integration Uh, so they worked for the last two years and made 67 recommendations on how to approach uh, better integrating the school system and uh 62 of those recommendations have been adopted and those will start this year. So first I want to just note that over the last two years, um, the recommendations uh, that have been developed were informed by Integrate NYC's, uh, which is a network of parents, students, and educators. And they have a framework called the five R's of real integration. Um, Those are race and enrollment, resources, relationships, restorative justice, and representation. Um, And if you'd like more information about these, you should go to integratenyc.org. As I said, I have talked about this um, with James Miles, who was was our first guest um, back in season one. And he had two kids who were in the New York City public school system, though they now live in Seattle. And Lauren Jost, uh, also in season one and one of my very dear friends, and she has two kids who currently uh, attend an elementary school in District 15. And this school district is uh, encompasses a large portion of Park Slope in Brooklyn. And they enacted a community-driven middle school diversity plan that um, changed the screening process in order to support desegregation in their schools. Um, so again, from my, my understanding... The committee makes recommendations rather than mandates so that each school district can work with its community to make plans that are not sort of like this one size fits all model, but actually specific to the needs of the whole community and and not just one part of it that dominates, whether intentionally or not, the power in that area. And so there are several districts this year that are developing plans that I am imagining will be um, enacted 
did in subsequent school years about um, how they can better diversify and integrate their school districts. Of course, there are socio and political implications around all of this, but I believe that the kinds of steps that are happening now, while, uh, well, frankly, they're bold, but they're also long, long overdue. I applaud these moves, these measures to change uh, or address the systemic issue that plagues the city and frankly is emblematic of a wider systemic oppression. And I really think that this is like a ripple of hope. Um, and while there's some potential vitriol and definitely lots and lots of debate around this and um, challenges, et cetera, but um, we need to do better and somebody's got to do it. And so I'm glad that um, movement is happening. And one, as somebody who works in schools, I see this on a daily basis and I don't necessarily have a whole lot to say about education policy, meaning I don't have anything to do to change education policy. I have lots to say about it, of course. But um, one of the things that I am uh, aware of from the ground is how um, when you look at those four or five, sorry, R's, resources are a big, big issue and how those are distributed across all all 1800 schools in the system. And it often has to do with taxes and and frankly, your zip code and income levels. And so to make some changes and provide some opportunity for equity um, is is really, really necessary. And um, so that kind of takes me back to our conversation or the conclusion of my conversation with Mindy A. Early, um, who I still haven't met in person yet, but I really enjoyed chatting with her about trauma-informed teaching and the professional development course that she designed with Bartol Foundation. Um, so many of the, the young people that I um, have experienced uh, living with trauma are often in these um, segregated schools and with lacking, uh, with resources or under-resourced schools and um, with teachers, school administrators, et cetera, who are um, very, very stressed or living in a, or working in a stressful environment for all the reasons that you could imagine. So, um, I'm really, uh, you know, I was really happy and thrilled that I was able to connect with Beth, uh, who's the executive director at Bartol Foundation and really, um, thrilled about how excited she has been about, um, being able to create this work or create space for this kind of work and hearing directly from Mindy about the work itself, some of the, um, the design of the course, her thought process behind the why and how, and um, also about her artistic de- endeavors. So here is episode 22, act two, Mindy A. Early, holding space for processing and magic. It's very robust. Um, and it's a lot. On, on every feedback form, everybody wants more time. Um, wow. You know, but even but even donating, you know, it's even committing, I won't say donating, but committing to 20 hours, you know, when you're a working uh, artist. Yeah, that's what I was thinking is that the amount of time that, you know, this is these are hours I'm imagining that one could be working exactly um, and to to and and do do folks have to pay for this or is this a part of 
Is this subsidized or do you know that? Uh, they don't have to pay for it. That's why the Bartle wow. Foundation is fantastic. Um, yeah, the Bartle Foundation uh, got a grant to facilitate this training and mm. even um, gives a stipend, a $200 stipend to the teaching artist hey. to help cover some of their travel costs mm. and, you know, uh, you know, child care or other things that may pop up. Um, yeah. yeah, so it, at least, yeah, I feel like it's great that it's offered for free in acknowledgement. I mean, that's what Bartle's acknowledging is like, yeah. you're here with us when you could be right. working um, and making money, you know, and that's, that's huge dedication, um, and, you know, to your practice. Yeah. It, 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 one, that's huge. Uh, do you know, um, do you have to be um, a, a, a resident of Philadelphia in order to participate? Um, well, this year, because this was a pilot year, um, uh, it was yes, but it was also yes because of the sheer number of applicants that came in. So for each, we had 12 slots, Mm -hmm. um, and we cap it at 12. It's very hard to cap it at 12 when you have so many people who you want to give this practice to, but when you're in a room together, it, it becomes very clear that if there were more than 12 people, you know, the amount of time that each voice would get to have in the space would be, yeah, would just be so reduced, which I think reduces some of the impact and processing that can happen. Mm -hmm. Um, So for the fall session, we had, I think, 45 applicants, and then we had three waitlisted applicants that we let into the spring session, so there were only nine slots available, and we had 45 applicants again. Um, wow. So we did have one or two. It's it's not that you can't apply from out of town, but um, I know for, I think from Bartle's lens, especially for this pilot year, mm-hmm. um, when there was such huge need from the immediate Philadelphia community, um, they wanted to give preference. That said, um, I know the Bartle Foundation is in conversation with um, organizations both in and outside the. Um, of Philadelphia mm-hmm. in terms of taking the training on the road where mm-hmm. we could come, you know, to, to New York, to D.C., to wherever. I even got a call at the office one day. One of my staff, uh, fellow staff members was like, someone from Kentucky is calling you? <laughs> um, so, That's great. <laughs> so it was the Kentucky Council of the Arts um, who's mm-hmm. looking into bringing a trauma-informed training in. Wow. So, um, yeah, Beth from, um, again, Beth from the Bartle Foundation can be contacted if um, someone who's outside of Philadelphia is interested in bringing the training to their area. Right. Um, I think they're also, um, I don't want to, like, put words in Bartle's mouth, but um, I think, you know, there's possibility to write grants to make that happen, mm-hmm. you know, where if, an organization wanted to write a grant in order to bring this training um, to their city. Um, I'm sure Bartle could help con- with contributing language and right. things like that. So, so okay, so, <laughs> so there's this was just the pilot year, and now there's enough. There's clearly enough need that folks are mm-hmm. wanting this to be replicated, you know, multiple times, whether it's in Philadelphia or beyond. Um, and and the participants who've been in it so far say it's not enough time. They want more time. <laughs> they want more time. I mean, there's a there's a dedication here that I find interesting that I I, I need a little minute to unpack. But um, 
so tell tell me because you know like I I talk about that like where oh you know the possibility of scaling this pilot up means that more people you need more people to facilitate. There's no way that you yeah. could do all of this by yourself because you have another job. <laughs> or right? is this right? Yeah. So I mean, I'm I'm not telling you what to do. I'm simply, you know, I'm I'm one of those people who can see like, oh, I see your vision, and now I can start seeing how it breaks down. And oh, you can't do that by yourself. That's not possible. But that you are, you should absolutely be part of like, you know, figuring out what the design looks like and all. But um, how how so. I think what I where I'm, gosh, there's so many places that we could go. Um, one, I'm thinking about like, how what has this experience been like for you as the person facilitating, creating, putting, designing the course itself, and then you know being able to implement it once and about. To, I'm imagining you're about to go into this spring, or has it already started? It's almost over. Right? Oh, it's almost over. Oh, so so yeah, you have these two. We have our last session. Wow. Yeah, next next Saturday is our last session for the spring course. I see. So when you said, Oh, this, this session we had, you were talking about right now. <laughs> yeah. I thought you meant in the fall. Okay. So, so you, you it went in the fall. Now you're almost done with this. Night. Wow. Um, I know. so what has the experience been like from your perspective as the facilitator and the designer? It's been, I mean, honestly, this feels like, one of the highlights of my professional life and maybe even my personal life too. I mean, part of why I came to Young Playwrights was what I was talking about earlier um, because in my life as a young person, I was using art for a lot of personal processing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so to first come to Young Playwrights, you know, which is an organization that holds space for that, and then through Young Playwrights, to dig into this training, which I think just really both holds such beautiful space for our young people and then um, provides us with tools to both really help them grow and then be able to self-reflect on their growth um, and then connect and make forge better connections with their peers um, is, it just makes, I, it just fills me with, a lot of joy. I mean, I love working with young people so much. I think young people are so overlooked in so many spheres mm. and, you know, being able to work with artists from all different arts disciplines, like every arts discipline has been represented in both of these trainings. Um, and I can't even remember the, the numbers that Beth mentioned in terms of I think the just from the fall class alone, I think the 12 artists in the room are working at 40 different sites and impacting over a thousand, if not close to 2000 young people this year alone. Mm -hmm. So just to be able to facilitate a program, which is going to have that impact Mm -hmm. um, has been really amazing. I mean, one of my biggest fears, honestly, um, after I also worked through some imposter syndrome when I was asked to do this, I was like, really me? I don't know if, if I'm the right uh, person or not. Um, but I got through that. Mm-hmm. And then once I got through that, um, my second fear was I come from such a strong theater and creative writing lens 
gosh, I really hope this is relevant to visual artists right. and musicians yeah. and media-based artists and dance-based artists because they're going to be in the room with me <laughs> and want relevant tools. And I think that's what's been one of the most inspiring things about these these sessions is just sitting around the table and hearing um, in the morning share out how all of these different disciplines have taken these tools um, and concepts and then morphed them into something that's absolutely gorgeous for their art form. Mm. Um, so just to give like a quick example, I was facilitating a self-regulating activity, which involved tossing a ball up in the air and just to do different forms of regulation. Each time the ball hits its um, maximum height just before it drops, you ask the group to either clap or stomp or let out a breath by saying, ha, huh. Um, and you can kind of uh, switch those around to however you want. And then the next week, um, one of our musician, um, music-based teaching artists said that he did that activity, but instead of the clap, stomp, or ha, he had them blowing into their instruments wow. as a warm-up and also a self-regulating activity. Mm. And when those things are shared around the table, I mean, I just like, my heart and my brain explode with, mm. with just like, joy and appreciation and excitement because I'm, I mean, I'm learning so much too, um, being in the room with other arts disciplines as well. So it's, it's been a really amazing conversation. And, you know, to your comment earlier, it's also just really beautiful to be around a table with teaching artists who are showing such great dedication to the young people Mm. that they work with that, you know, they're, you know, they had that same moment that I and my teaching artists had here, which is these young people I work with. I know there there are reasons behind what's going on. I know there are tools that can better help them and just, you know, committing themselves to a 20-hour training, you know, with hours plus for all of this reading um, and showing up. And then, yeah, saying that they wish it was even longer is it's just, it's awesome. It's really awesome. <laughs> it sounds really awesome. I think that, you know, I, as you were talking, I was thinking about, um, I haven't really, you know, every once in a while you meet somebody in this field that you're like, what are you doing in this field? But mostly I find that this is not a field for people who want to coast. Yeah. This is a field of people who want to work, who want to do good work, who are uh, often striving to do better, even if they are at the top of their game. And so it doesn't surprise me that, you know, that you had 45 applications (laughs) for 12 spots or nine spots. It doesn't surprise me at all. Mm -hmm. In fact, I I, I would say that it could be even higher and might be as, as time goes on that there are people who, you know, despite all the logistical aspects, really want depth of understanding, depth of knowledge and depth of practice. Um, and, and what a, what an amazing thing to be a part of and to, to, you know, be able to partner with Bartol foundation. Um, I say Bartol, is that incorrect? Cause I've heard you say Bartol. I think that's just my North Jersey accent oh. talking. <laughs> Great. Um, you know, potato, potato. <laughs> uh, great. Uh, but I, you know, to have that um, entity to be able to support the infrastructure of this um, really strong work, it sounds like. And I know that when I talked to Beth, um, you know, I I met Beth about uh, last summer 
um, being a judge on uh, for a three arts uh, panel and um, immediately was sort of like, I've seen her, I've seen her before, but I, I sort of was like, oh, now we're in the room together and I can, I can impress her. And I did. And then she was like, we should, we should scheme together. We should do stuff. And I was like, yes, yes, yes. And so she, she came and did a workshop with us. And then we sent um, some teaching artists and did a, a session with about 20 artists uh, there. And uh, when we were talking specifically about this course, she was very proud and excited about the possibilities and the amount of interest and the amount of dedication that the artists were um showcasing um because that's when we talked was like in january i think um so yeah it's it's been it's it i I think that this is thrilling i want to i want to see more i want to see where this goes i will track it um what would you say has been the biggest challenge for you in in all of this so far there's been some interesting challenges um i think one challenge is when you read a lot of these texts you know because they are coming from academia and they are coming from the sciences mm-hmm. where there has to be rightfully so like a lot of rigor in proving um, you know, theory proving practice. Um, I know that, you know, when you have such high empathy artists in the room, um, a few artists, both in the Bartle trainings and also, you know, at PYP and sometimes even myself, um, can struggle, uh, with, you know, the visceral examples Mm. that are being presented, um, the case studies, that you know you mentioned earlier, um, or also even just how sometimes it, you know individuals are, are it can come off a little cold. Let's just say it that way, okay. um, or a little clinical. Yeah. Um, and sometimes that you know when you have such passionate, dedicated, like high empathy folks, um, that can be a little hard to receive. Um, I think. And it's not a challenge necessarily. I mean, it's it's a journey I went through too, um, and I still go through as I'm I'm doing various trainings. You know, you you enter a space um, motivated by doing right by your students, and then you learn all of these things, and you inadvertently have your own life epiphanies yeah. about you know things that are popping for you and experiences that you've had and, and where's the care and balance for yourself and the patience for yourself right. in terms of that. And, you know, as a facilitator who's with folks for a limited amount of time, you know, yeah, the, the ultimate goal is that we're looking at this, uh, you know, we're looking at these, these theories, we're looking at this information. Yeah. Um, through the lens of working with young people, but sometimes there just needs to be space to also look at it through ourselves or to hold space when an artist wants to look at it through the lens of, you know, being a parent, um, you know, or a friend or um, a partner or a family member. You know, so that's been an interesting, um, you know, moment for me because I want to stay in my lane 
as a facilitator, you know, and I don't want to ever feel like I um, am turning the corner, you know, into a a therapy role because that's not my lane at all. And, you know, I don't want to do a disservice. So, um, but I do want to hold space for those things. So that's been an interesting, um, you know, not challenge, but reality that going into this training, um, I wasn't expecting. Mm. And then just sort of had to, you know, instinctually navigate, like, what's the best way to, to handle this? And I'm still honestly figuring that out. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that'll be a process in, in figuring that out. Yeah. I, I um, actually think that yeah. um, it's not as much in the book, Hope and Healing, but in, in terms of that karma, um, the way that Sean talks about it is, is that it is, a, it is for the adults working with the, ki- the young people that Mm -hmm. to be able to ingrain this sort of self-care radical healing practice into your own life and your own uh ways of operating that can be translated and into curriculum or content or strategies for delivering that content but that we need to be thinking about our own aspirations and our own uh, relationships and meaning making and agency um, so the more we're able to practice it, the better we can bring it to other mm-hmm. communities in order to create he- healing. So, so, you know, where, what this unexpected, you know, um, uh, issue that's sort of coming up that you're addressing, I'm sure in, 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 in multiple ways, it might get even more informed if, as you learn more about his work. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Mm. So I was just curious about um, your art making. You, 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 all yeah. we've been talking about really is you know your work as a director and your or, or, sorry education director and and um, um, as a teaching artist and and more specifically a professional development um, facilitator. Uh, are are you making art or you know do you still consider yourself an artist and if so, uh, you know how is that manifesting in your in your life right now? Yeah, that's a great question. So I'm, I'm in an odd, um, I feel like I'm in an odd space because so much of my, I'm a very dualistic personality. Um, we're doing just one thing, um, just doesn't feel balanced for me. Mm. Um, so it used to be that I would find that balance between kind of pen, uh, swinging the pendulum between being a director and a playwright. And, you know, when I was directing, I'd be, like, so excited by the end of the, of the directing uh, experience to, like, just go work on a play for a while and then, like, vice versa. Um, so when I dug so deep into theater education and then when I came to Young Playwrights, it's – we get um, – we have two festivals. We have a monologue festival that got almost 650 submissions this year. Mm-hmm. And our playwriting festival will probably hit over 700 submissions this year. Wow. So I, I just dropped those numbers to say that there's like this glorious wealth of of theater, uh, you know, uh, theater writing that like I just, you know, gets gloriously dumped all over me um, and I get to read it and enjoy it. So like that need is so filled um, that I haven't written a play um, in almost 10 years. Oh, wow. Um, so to balance my very dualistic personality, um, I, 
I'm working on a young adult series and signed a contract with a publisher in September. Um, so uh, the first book um, in my young adult series will be published in um, about this time next year. Um, and then the second one will be published in fall of next year. And then the third one in the series will be published in 2020, uh, 2021. Um, so I have a lot of writing to still do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah, I transitioned into fiction. Um, and I that's what I started writing when I was a very young person, like, and I mentioned this earlier, that I was, I turned to art for processing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I did that through fiction and poetry. And then I hit college and went and, dove really deep into theater so it became playwriting and now I've kind of come full circle and I'm back in fiction and I think it's my work at Young Playwrights that that made me decide to write for young adults so I, I set out and I wrote a series and um, yeah I'm, I'm really excited about it that's really exciting you know it's funny when you first said it I was like why I feel like I'm having deja vu and I realized Oh no, when we talked on the phone, you told me this, but I still am very impressed, even though I knew it already. It's, it's, I, I have a few friends who've written, uh, YA, uh, uh, literature and, um, uh, love it. Just love it. Um, so, you know, good, good, good on ya. Um, how thrilling, how exciting, um, I find, uh, so I've been working with, a uh, my theater partner who is the playwright of the two of us. And, um, she, it's, it's so funny how people feel like we do this to ourselves a lot, don't we? That, um, time, time to, to we feel like, oh no, it's taking me so, so long to do this thing, to create this, whatever the thing is. And, you know, time mm-hmm. is a thing, but you have like markers, <laughs> you do have time markers. So. Uh, but you've done some, you know, you've done enough work that they believe in you. And I think that's really exciting. Um, and then that takes me back to the, the book that you're going to, the other book that you're going to write. Well, that's right. That's, <laughs> that's sort of the conundrum I'm in, right? Yeah. <laughs> but it doesn't when have do to I, be like when do I... tomorrow, right? No, it's true. And, you know, in a way there's totally different you know, they're probably not from a clinical standpoint, but for me, they feel like totally different parts of the brain. Mm. You know, if I'm diving into fiction, that has a very different vibe and, um, you know, air about it versus if I'm, you know, diving into, yeah, a nonfiction piece of (laughs) pedagogy case. Yeah. Yeah. Narrative fiction versus, you know, self-help or help books. Yeah. No, they're, they're different. Right. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I admire writers. I feel I've I've said this many times in different ways where like I'm like, I'm not that, I'm not this. I like these things. I admire people who do these things, but writing is not it's not that kind of writing is not me. Um, but I love it. I love uh I look forward to seeing what you put out actually. Thank you, thank you. Yeah. I say the same thing about the visual arts where I'm like, I am so not a visual arts person Mm -hmm. and I actually think that's beautiful Mm -hmm. because I can just sit in front of this gorgeous piece of art and appreciate it without analyzing it yeah 
which is something that's completely broken for me in both theater and and fiction now at this point. Like, my analytical structural brain always kicks in. Mm -hmm. And I still appreciate it, but I'm also still analyzing at the same time versus, like, just going to an art museum is one of my favorite things. Mm -hmm. Because I just get to, like, bask in all of these things and not have to, you know, dig into that analytical side of, like, why it is what it is and just, like, enjoy that it is. Uh, I feel like that's almost every every conversation I've ever had with my dad who we, we would go see theater and then I'd like break it down and he'd be like, Courtney, you're so critical. And I'm like, no, no, no. <laughs> this is what you're supposed to do is break it down. Oh, I have all this technique and you just enjoy it. And you want to yeah, like right? talk about the themes and that's all good. But I can also tell you like, that person did not do their work. This person, what was up with that? <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. But I, I feel the same about going to a visual arts where I don't need to know the period. I don't need, really need to know anything. I just want to know, do right. I like it? Does it yeah. move me? And I don't have to. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, word. Um, okay. So last question. I don't know what it is yet. Let's see. Oh, ooh, I'm trying this new thing. So maybe I can do it with you. I'll start with you. So what, this will be maybe hard, but I think it'll be fun. Uh, I have this thing about what are the 10 best things about working in arts education? The 10 best things about working in arts education. Um, I think the first one that popped in my head was being a lifelong learner Mm. and being in a continual environment of learning. Mm -hmm. And then I can piggyback off of myself and say, yeah. And then also being in a continual environment of making, um, and, and artistry. Um, I think through my work, at least. Um, where unless we're working in a production at Young Playwrights, it's it's very lab workshop based. So it's a high exploration environment and a high experimentation environment without the pre- uh, pressure of producing mm-hmm. um, product. Um, you know, so experimentation and exploration are two things that are really important to me. Um, the the cornucopia of different personalities and people and approaches and perspectives that come to the table and also thus needs that come to the table. But just, I, you know, I'm sure there's many fields that work with a huge body and population of people that are really diverse, but, um, I feel like arts education is one of those too, mm-hmm. um, you know, and that's really incredible. Um, something that you mentioned earlier, just that, yeah, that concept that's so hard to put into words, but, you know, being able to lay a pathway um, and watch someone walk that pathway and make the, their own and have a growth journey mm-hmm. and see that, spark moment, like that light bulb moment, mm-hmm. um, and that transformative moment, I just, there's nothing like it. It's so exciting and joyful. So much of my practice, um, 
you know, outside of young playwrights is, you know, I call it um, working for writers who don't consider themselves writers, mm. um, you know, because I think there's just that ability to give, you know, tools that are so accessible and just like let this unlocking happen and then see what happens when that unlocking happens. Um, it's just it's such like a treat to be a part of. Um, I feel like that was seven or eight things. Uh, um, that was five. <laughs> oh no! I will, but oh, but you, there was five? a lot inside of those five, so that will yeah. put you up to seven. Go. Okay. Yeah, there's kind of like <laughs> subsets that that happen. Mm. Um, what else about arts education? Um, I. This is silly. It's a silly one, no, but none of them. They, no, there's no such thing. <laughs> I, I, it allows me for whatever reason. I'm probably going to be 90 years old, and like my energy is going to resonate still with teenagers. I don't know why that's going to be. I'm almost 40, and that's still real. Um, so, I mean, it allows me to work with <laughs> the energy that resonates with me the most. Mm-hmm. I think for whatever reason, young people. Um, resonate with me the most. I think, like you said, being able to work with such passionate, empathetic, dedicated, and then also talented and creative people, the people in this field mm-hmm. are are quite amazing and I think also really giving in terms of sharing practices and sharing resources mm-hmm. um, and collaborating. Um, so that's been wonderful. Um, Last and then one. I think, yeah, bringing art to spaces that aren't arts-based spaces, but that want the arts to come in to activate conversation about their space in different ways. So we've mm. been to like historical sites and, and other community sites. Mm. And just being able to to bring arts to those spaces to help them facilitate um, that conversation through a different lens, through a different way, through actual making instead of just dialogue is really cool and fascinating work. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, Mindy. I'm here for it. I like that we've never met and you use language that I either have said in um, multiple contexts uh, or um, something that I, you articulated something that I didn't have the words for, but wanted to say. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Um, this has honestly been a really, really delightful conversation. Um, I really appreciate you taking yeah. the time with me. Um, is there any last thing that you want to say about the, the trauma-informed um, teaching artist practice or just you know anything else before we we end there is oh um so in every single presentation i've given um whether at a conference or um through the training sessions i do Mm -hmm. i have a slide that says uh you are already amazing cool because I think that's something that we need to remember mm. as teaching artists is that we are coming with so many tools to the table already to serve our students well. We may not have from a behavioral health lens 
the exact reason why our tools are working so well, and that's why it's great to to dig into that through a trauma-informed training, but those tools are there and they work. And, you know, once you get that behavioral health background, you can even leverage them better. But that's part of what makes us amazing. And then in, I want to say, pretty much every uh, book that centers around trauma that you'll read, the the thing that they say, the number one thing that can either help prevent trauma or helps an individual heal from trauma um, are relationships. Mm and the relationships that surround them. So when we go into classrooms as teaching artists and we're modeling what it looks like to have a caring, healthy relationship with an adult who sees, hears, and respects us, no matter what we do, we are making an impact on that young person. Um, that is really special. Um, so I think when you dive into a lot of this learning, there can be a little bit of overwhelm. And I always like to center teaching artists and just take that moment to say, remember, you are amazing. You have so much that you're doing already. So I think that's, that's what I would throw out there as a final point. I love that. Period. Full stop. Um, yeah. Well, I think you're amazing. And I Thank you. Look, I think you're amazing. Uh, I look forward to talking more with you and meeting at some point in person. And um, absolutely, thank you for your work on this, and um, thank you for you know all the sort of uh, you know deep dives that you've taken into understanding this from the medical points of view and the sort of behavioral health points of view and translating it for uh, us as artists. And I can only imagine that those uh, teaching artists that you've already worked with and are currently working with, uh, as you said, are having light bulb moments and um, being able to have impact on their own practice and then ultimately having impact on all those students and those young people's lives um, out in, in Philly and potentially be well, well, well beyond. Um, so I look forward to, again, learning more and talking more and, um, happy and happy, happy, happy Thursday. <laughs> yeah. Happy Thursday. Thank you so much for this conversation. It's been absolutely lovely. Thank you for listening to episode 22, act two of teaching artistry with Courtney J. Body, Mindy A. Early holding space for processing and magic. Join us next time for a conversation with Blick Art Materials supported artist Sherlene Cooper of Women's Empowerment Group. Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Body is edited and produced by Ben Weber. Christopher Totten is the creative content manager. Brandon Hutchinson is the media arts coordinator. Jono Waldman wrote and performed the theme song. Tim Palin designed the logo. Visit us at www.teachingartistry.org. Follow us on Twitter at TA underscore artistry and on Instagram at Teaching Artistry with CJB. Like our page on Facebook, listen to us on SoundCloud, subscribe and rate us on iTunes, and be sure to share this podcast with all the teaching artists in your life.